You're listening to the RUV English podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is slash English. This is RUV English. I'm Darren Adam. Thank you as ever for your company. My guest today is joining me remotely from the UK where she lives, but she has spent a very great deal of time in Iceland. And that's what we're going to talk about, specifically the work that she has made from that time, a book called The Raven's Nest that was published in hardback last year. It comes out in paperback at the beginning of June. And Sarah Thomas is the author. She joins me today. Sarah, delighted to hear from you and to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time Thanks this book is me. you're very welcome the book has been out for for nearly a year as we say it's coming out in paperback but it describes a familiar story I think for many people who fall in love with Iceland you fell in love with the country but then you fell in love with someone in the country as well and that's that's really where we start mm. isn't it well we actually start I mean what I wanted to write was a narrative that wasn't following the normal sure. narrative I, I guess our conversation starts there yes yes yeah. and so that book that you've written it describes you falling in love with the country but it also describes you falling regrettably out of love with the person that you met and you you intertwine those those narratives those threads don't you yeah well I, I think what was very striking for me was that um when I lived there myself and and the landscape and people in the landscape didn't um I didn't experience them as, as separate at all mm. so I felt it was very appropriate to intertwine and to find a way of telling a story that that wove these many threads together and it wasn't just a story of, of me as an individual. Tell me about that initial journey then to Iceland, why you decided to go, if you had any expectations, and and if, and if so, were they met when you got there? You mean the very, very first journey? Yeah, the very because I'm always fascinated, having, having fallen in love with Iceland myself, I'm always fascinated by other people's stories of how they fell in love and why they chose to go there in the first place. Well, I, I I came to Iceland in the first place because I was invited to show a film that I'd made at a sort of film festival and conference up in Isafjordur in 2008. And that was just before the financial crisis. So it was May, everything was still really good. Um, and I, yeah, I, I kind of, when I got the invitation, it was a very strange thing where I suddenly felt like I'd always wanted to go to Iceland, but not quite been yeah, yeah. aware of it on a, on a rational level. But I, I think what I would have had in mind is somewhere incredibly sort of, um, yeah, elemental, which, you know, I still feel when I go there, somewhere where, where you're stripped back to, to basics somewhat. You, you get the place to meet yourself and to meet. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's quite, I find it a really good place to kind of think with in a way. Um, anything that happens in Iceland can kind of happen anywhere in the world, but it's way more evident in the ground there. And what I met was a place that felt incredibly... Um, freeing in the sense that there didn't seem to be it didn't seem to be bound by loads of protocols for example the airport bus at that time you could say oh well I'm staying at this hotel and it would drop you at that hotel and and it was very it felt very personable mm. it wasn't just that there was one location that it went to and that was it it felt like it was tending to people people's needs and um things seemed to be um not allowed or disallowed it was like para prova <laughs> everything was para prova just try it and then see what happens you know that's what I'd ask if it doesn't really work that. <laughs> yeah 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 and it's an interesting time I think because the the the, the late 2000s or the noughties if we've decided that's what we're calling them an interesting time in Icelandic history because you've you've got the financial crisis but you're also just on the edge of something that put Iceland on the map for many people uh, which was the eruption at uh, which a lot of people obviously don't look at and remember fondly because it meant they weren't able to fly around 
for three or four weeks, however long it was. But those two events, for better or for worse, I think really did put Iceland, as I say, on the, the map, metaphorically speaking. Did you get that sense coming to the country around that time? I did. And I feel very fortunate that I got to experience the country just before that happened. I mean, I feel mm. like there was kind of a two year lag. I feel like tourism really started kicking off in 2010 as the corona had devalued and as the, the volcano had ended. And then people sort of, yeah, it came into people's awareness and then they started coming in their numbers. And the reason I know that was because I was running the shop at Landmannalaugar and the number of sandwiches we had to make increased exponentially. <laughs> like that's how I could measure what was happening in the tourism. Yeah, that's, that, that's not a metric that you see on, on the, the World Factbook or the CIA website, is it? The number of sandwiches no. you have to sell to, uh, to, keep no, up with, exactly. uh, to keep up with demand. You were in the Westfjords, which I still think even now feels like a different place to much of the rest of Iceland. I first came in 1998 and the Westfjords now feel to me as if much of Iceland did in 1998. When were you last there? Uh, last summer. When I uh, um, when the book came out, it was very important to me that I was in Iceland, mm, in mm. Westfjords, and I wanted to go and do a series of readings in, yeah. in the places where it was set and to the people people that were in the book so yeah I was I was actually um there in publication date I was actually caught in a really bad storm um in Olafsvik on the day of publication mm. it was like completely not the romantic idea that I had <laughs> of in, the, in the summer sunshine but um it was a really great trip um yeah I mean I went to Flate and all that Flap City yeah, and yeah. all around the place and visited the farms in the dupe that were that were part of the story as well and did you, in the time that you've spent in Iceland since 2008, 2009, between sort of then and the last time that you were there in the Westfjords last year, have you noticed a change in the Westfjords? Absolutely. I mean, I want to be clear for readers, people who haven't read the book yet, this is not a, a story of someone who has travelled to Iceland and kept going back. This is a story of somebody who moved indeed. to Iceland indeed. and but married an Icelander to... and, and lived there yes. in a house in, in Nivstallet. Um, and so with I, the totality I, of your experience, would, would, would you say the Westfjords have changed maybe as much as the rest of Iceland or are they still perhaps protected from a lot of what's been going on? I wouldn't say they're protected necessarily, but I think, you know, the more a certain narrative gets perpetuated, the more numbers of people do that. So like there's the ring road as if and sometimes that's framed by travel books as if it's like the only road. And then yeah, yeah. Fjords is this kind of separate appendage so that the slightly more adventurous tourists make it up to the West Fjords. But of course, we've got cruise ship tourism there in, in a massive way. And I was reflecting the other day, actually, there's a there's a chapter in the book where I talk about there being 33 ships one summer as if that was a thing. And this summer, they're having 200, you know, that's that's how significant the change is. And we're talking, you know, these ships have between 500 and 3000 tourists on each of them, descending on a town that back then had a population of like two and a half thousand people. Mm. So yeah, I would say it has changed massively in one sense in, in terms of the sheer influx of people. And the other thing that I'm picking up on is that there's a lot more foreigners moving there and, and staying. So it's a lot more cosmopolitan, or at least a lot more outwardly cosmopolitan because in fact there were a lot of um immigrants living there when i lived there but they were a lot of filipino and, and polish people who yes. were quietly doing you know a lot of the factory work whereas now there's a lot more for example students coming to the west Fjords center a lot more americans europeans moving and and also marrying and it feels pretty yeah east of europe feels pretty cool these days i think i'd have had a much easier time now than yes. i did then i mean well, there was right. no even Icelandic courses that I could do back then because there wasn't enough foreigners for it to run. It just wasn't the demand, was there, I suppose? No, and I mean, it existed in theory, but they, they wouldn't run it just for me. 
So. You're right about the book very much not being a, a travelogue. This is not what I did in my holidays. It's also a very personal, very raw book um, in terms of what you choose to write about because the relationship you had, the marriage that you had with the Icelander that you met drew to an end. And you, mm -hmm. you detail that as well. And it goes back to what I was saying at the start. You've got these twin narratives, a, a country that you're still very much in love with, still very much together with, and a relationship that you are not. Talk me through the, I guess, the decision to write about that. And was it difficult to to be honest? Well, I think we always, you know, choose. There's, there's obviously a lot that's left out as much as there's things that I've chosen to be in. But as I said, it was so striking to me that the the personal and and... Yeah, myself and landscape, I couldn't perceive them as separate. Yeah. And so I wanted to yeah. write a story where they were bound together and that the reader could experience that binding together and how things are never tidy. I wanted to, to find a shape that could accommodate the messiness of, of life. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, it was hard to write it until I'd got to a certain point in myself. But at the same time, you know, it, it, I think the hardest part was that continually shifting terrain of a relationship that's coming to an end and has recently mm. ended that there's still an ongoing kind of navigation of, of different relationships and it's not just with one person it's with their entire family um so that's that's the hard part but equally yeah. that reflected my experience of living in iceland at a time where you know the ground beneath my feet almost was shuddering with with all these tremors happening and also the way that the light changes every day yeah. My experience of Iceland is a place where you're constantly having to kind of navigate a shifting terrain. And so the, my experience of writing the book was no different. When your marriage was ending and things in the relationship weren't going as you might have wished, did any of that transfer into disappointment with Iceland itself? Because the two were maybe, I don't know whether they were intertwined in your mind at the beginning, but did you feel disappointed by the country because your, your marriage was ending? Was, was that part of it? Yeah. Not at all. No, I'd say, you know, the, the marriage with Iceland is ongoing and healthy. And in That's fact, the, op the opposite is true. I, I felt like, um, I mean, I don't want to focus too much on the marriage marriage part because sure. I, I've intentionally written a way where that's it's not a, a divorce memoir it's not a, a marriage memoir it's it's one it's the the vehicle for the story of a place but if anything uh once I didn't need anything from Iceland anymore once mm -hmm. I'd stopped being an individual who was constantly trying to compare it with the UK or constantly tr hoping that it would be easier for me or, or something once I relinquished that need whenever I've come back now, it's absolutely amazing. Like it helps that I can speak the language mm -hmm. and it helps also that I just know how things roll a little bit, but I come, I come and hitchhike around with my tent because I love that. I can trust that everything will be fine, that I know that every night I will have somewhere to sleep and every, you know, I've never waited more than like 10 minutes for a ride. And really? I meet all these people and they always know someone that I know and I just get loads of stories that way. So I find it completely fascinating. We'll maybe talk about your desire to be back in the country, but what really comes, and you talk about the people that you've met and what really comes through in this book, I think, is those stories and the characters. And it's beautifully drawn, I think, and to describe the people that you have met. You've, <laughs> you've got uh, Gida and Hoiker. You can maybe just remind us who, who they are talking about the... The fermented skate which they have in their house and the and the smell that you still remember and the taste that you can probably still summon up but you get a real sense of who they are as well and why that's important to them Gida and Hoika are my my uh my my in-laws except that was a funny part for me where they started being referred to as in-laws even on mm -hmm. my first mm -hmm. Christmas visit 
And I realized then that it was like, oh, right, you know, you, you just a serious intention for the relationship seems to be enough to suddenly be taken in very fully by a family. Uh, in that particular chapter, um, it's my first Christmas where I arrive on Thorlaxmessa and they're cooking this fermented skate for all their friends and neighbours. They've got this sort of pop-up pop up restaurant in the house. And uh, I asked somebody, you know, so um, people seem to sort of have this, there was a mirth in the room at sort of their their characters. And I said, oh, so are my in-laws not typical? And they said, well, typical from the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> because I realised, I mean, it's not that everybody eats skada either on Tholaksma. You know, they they yeah. were keeping alive some traditions from a while ago, which is also why I really wanted to write this story, is because I felt like I had one foot in, in a more distant past than mm -hmm. you experienced, the 1998 past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my husband yeah, yeah. in particular was really adamant about keeping certain old traditions alive, you know, and one of which was reading aloud to the household. You know, that was an amazing tradition that I've actually taken on as the way that I tour my book so I've actually been on tour around the whole of the UK mm. France Germany, Sweden and Iceland doing live readings in the tradition of, of Koltvaka and inviting people to bring their their knitting to do as I read to them well so that was something that I've carried something that is really striking to me we were talking about the perceived separateness of the Westfjords even to this day and something I find very striking, which I have actually heard from other people who either live in or who are from the Westfjords. You speak to a journalist in the book, his name is Huldur, and mm -hmm. he says that he wanted to come and live in the Westfjords for a while because, and I quote, Reykjavik was too intense. Now, many people who aren't in Iceland, who've never been to Iceland, will maybe find the idea of a city as relatively small as Reykjavik being too intense preposterous. But I have heard it from other people who live in other parts of Iceland and specifically the Westfjords. It does offer an escape, even from Reykjavik, which is not a particularly big bustling city by the by international standards, is it? No, and I, but I think there's something about a sort of culture of in, in Reykjavik in any cities. There's a culture of busyness being something to admire. You know, people say, you know, but it's. It's not to say that, you know, I think Westfjordians are incredibly like um, work proud as well. Westfjordians work really hard, but there's just more space in the day because everything's so close together. You know, you, you end at sort of five or even four on the dot. And then there's there's not there's not loads to do other than be with your with your family and and tend to existence. So it just feels like a much more spacious existence. And I felt really uh embedded into the rhythms of the year there in a way that i think you don't in the city there's a, a a beautiful section of writing which i'm going to read if i may and hopefully i can do justice to what you've written here it's in the chapter entitled the strangest silence and this is from 2012 you talk about the weather being wild you say the seawall below the house boomed as the breakers heaved their guts over its girth lying in bed i could feel the impact like a distant explosion over and over and over the wind's howl was a mournful constant as it coursed ice crystals down the treeless valley past my house and in a few places squeezed itself through crumbling window putty in a high scream. I'm there. I think, hopefully, as I read that, anyone listening to this is there as well. You've really been touched by the, the nature, haven't you? It's part of you now, I think. Absolutely. I think I, Iceland made me into a shape that now I don't quite fit 
outside of Iceland. I feel very I feel very fluent with Iceland when I'm there. Mm. But I equally know that I've only visited in summer since I left. And I know that the winter mm. is a whole different scene. <laughs> um, one that also affects me very bodily. Like I felt it, I felt very sluggish and I, I forgot what my ideas were. I find it really challenging to kind of just be myself. But right. I am actually going to be coming in November for Iceland okay. Noir. I'll be doing a talk then. So I'll get to remind myself of what the winter's like. Well, it's so strange you mentioned that because in the emails that you and I exchanged as we were setting up this conversation, and one of the more recent ones, you said that you hoped I was enjoying the ever-lengthening nights and I didn't have time to respond to you to that particular email so I might as well tell you now I hate the lengthening uh, lengthening days rather I, I I really dislike that I really like the Icelandic winter and I find the summer here it's the first summer that we've spent here but you know knowing that there's another month of the days lengthening and the sun being around for 20 21 hours I find that really uncomfortable I say roll on October and November so you and I, we're not at one on, on, on that, it seems. No, not in the slightest. Goodness me. Wow. Well, it's lucky there are people like you. Yes. I mean, there's, there's a bit also in this book where um, I remember seeing somebody walking backwards in a blizzard, you know, like with his back pressed against the wind because the wind was so strong. And I just thought, my God, you know, that's hardcore. Mm -hmm. And I know that my, my um, former husband also really loved storms. And yeah. if he didn't experience a storm, storm in a winter he'd feel sort of not very alive so um it's not to say that I want it all you know cozy cozy just just calm all the time but I yeah. it's the darkness it's not the cold it's the darkness I really like the darkness I really like that it, I, 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 like I feel it sluggish in the summer in the way that you feel sluggish when it's when it when okay. it's dark I think okay. I mean we're sitting here on the in a valley where where the sun took um two and a half months longer to return to the valley that I was in than it did to to neighboring yeah. Isafir so it's very steep sided. So if you, I mean, try living in Neustadt and get back to me on that one. I, I, I will. <laughs> I'd like to at some point. But yeah, I mean, you're describing a location there where technically the sun has risen, but you can't see it because it's behind the mountain. So you'd have to climb to the top of the hill if you wanted to see the sun even for a couple of hours a day. Um, okay. I mean, we're sitting here on the 22nd of May and tomorrow there is a series of yellow weather alerts across most of the country for sleet and hail, snow was mentioned and very strong winds. So even being here, you know, four weeks away from the longest day, <laughs> it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get something that feels summery, does it? Well, this feels incredibly timely then, because I think this is almost, um, you know, to the day, the day that I first came to Iceland back in 2008. And I'd come equipped with loads of big jumpers and, and it's actually really warm, really sunny. And I thought, but I, I don't have the right clothes for this. I'm just too hot all the time. Yes. And it was that it was that weather and that constant light and that sort of pink, pink skies at two o'clock in the morning. When I came out of the film festival and conference, I'd, I'd come out onto the street and it was it was still light. And I felt like the world was my oyster. And that one fact of it not being dark at night just turned everything upside down about what mm. I'd taken for granted in life. And I was so curious to sort of see what else I could unshackle from my own pre, sort of preconditioning. Mm. And that's that's what kind of led to me deciding to just take a plunge and move. So if I'd had the weather that you've got forecast, my whole life could have been quite different. It could have been different because your perception of what would have been possible would have been changed. Yes, on that very exactly. day yeah. well we are grateful that you made the trip when you did because we might not have the book that I'm holding in my hand if you had done differently The Raven's Nest by Sarah Thomas it's been out since July of last year in hardback but as we said it's coming to paperback 1st of June
1st of June with a new cover and that has on the front a photograph from the family archive, family photo album archive of a house being floated on the ocean and towed by a boat, which is mm. one of the most remarkable things that my in-laws had got up to long yes. before I met them. But it was a story that that was told in the family. And I think it makes such an amazing metaphor for how we might approach life, you know, with a spirit of of curiosity and adventure and just giving things a try to make what you imagine possible. You are a filmmaker as well as a, an author. In fact, this is your first book. And, and so filmmaking is what you do. But you write in a very visual way do you consciously when you construct a sentence or a paragraph and we read one of the paragraphs a few moments ago do you construct what you write with a, a filmmaker's eye if that makes sense or a filmmaker's pen maybe yeah I think I can't not because I was trying to make a film while I was there and actually in a way this book is a response to my failure to make a film but I found Iceland to be a place where it didn't really want to be pinned down and I definitely didn't want to make a documentary that was the usual talking heads landscape vistas yes Seagram soundtrack i wanted to do something different but i noticed that as i was shooting footage it was very difficult for me to be this invisible observer in the style that i'd been taught to make documentaries which is observational documentary where the, the person filming doesn't talk and they try and be invisible it's very it's kind of impossible to to reconcile being an invisible observer with someone who's trying to integrate into a culture because people are talking across the camera all the time. So my my positionality in the footage was was very messy and constantly changing. And this writing a book allowed me then to kind of reshoot the footage and and to sort of be able to, to untangle those moments that were interesting in a way, those moments of it being problematic making a film were still interesting. So I, yeah, I feel like I could move the camera around and, and the way that I tell a story is in a film way yes. but also with reading aloud in mind I definitely wanted the words to feel really delicious on the tongue and I I have read it as an audiobook as well and I and I've chosen words that were influenced by learning the language and how poetic Icelandic is I wanted mm. to kind of carry some of that experience some of that experience of how inter interconnected the words are into my English language Perhaps, as I had to go earlier on, and I'm sure you'll do a much better job than I, we can hear you reading from the book as well, Sarah. And this, I should warn my colleagues at Roof, this, <laughs> this does touch on what some of them do, as you mention, Icelandic National Radio. So let's hear a bit of the book. Bearing in mind that it was at a time before I really understood what was being said. So what I'm hearing is the, the cadence of voices. Yes, indeed so. Content. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to read a little um, extract about listening to Icelandic radio. I notice how differently I've come to feel about the silence in this short time. I realize that the radio is not on as it used to be almost constantly. I feel less need to drown out an absence of something or distract myself, finding myself strong enough now to be curious about what is here. If I do switch on the radio, I do not reach straight for British podcasts to keep me anchored in my former identity. Rather, listening to the melodic burbling of Icelandic Raus Eip, which has begun to make some sense to me now. There is little variation in tone in the presenter's voice between radio documentaries, two-for-one leg of lamb offers, and the obituaries, all offered at a steady pace, carrying listeners through the day without sensationalism, ceasing just before midnight for some hours of silence. On the 23rd of December, Thorlaugsmesser, 
the anchor reads out Christmas greetings sent in from well-wishers to loved ones around the country. They read out all of them, taking the day over it. Soon, between the middle and the end of March, as every year, there will be an announcement that touches my heart. Loan er Kormen, the golden plover has come, marking the beginning of spring. Although spring is a tumultuous time of fierce winds and schizophrenic weather, it means we are on the home run to summer and the return of life. I have come to perceive the clock and crunk of the ravens, the purring wings of a flock of snow bunting, the dirie of the golden plover, the drumming of the snipe, and the cooing of Ida as sound markers and companions of the shifting seasons. Might you translate this or have this translated into Icelandic? Obviously, I think it's fair to say anyone in Iceland who wants to read it, if they are Icelandic, they will understand English and be able to read it as an English work. But are you interested in translating it into Icelandic? It would make me so happy if an Icelandic publisher wanted to translate it into Icelandic, just because of, you know, Iceland gave me this. And so yes. I feel like it would yes. be happy to give it back. But I know that the way that the um, <clears throat> publishing industry in the UK works is that they were very, very unlikely to attempt to sort of backwards translate something yes, that's yes. a lot of time is it's an Icelandic book they're trying to get translated into English. But if, if there's any Icelandic publisher that would be interested, then I, I would definitely mm. be up for that. It would feel right to me. Yes. Yeah. You've talked or you've touched on being in Iceland for the launch of the book, I think, last year. The response that you've had to the book so far, not just in Iceland or the UK, but in other countries that you've visited, it's been positive? Very positive, yeah. I mean, it was it was quite um, nerve-wracking. The first reading that I ever did in, in Iceland, because there was this sense of accountability, and I hadn't, I'd of course, sent uh, draft chapters to the people that are in it, but um, that that thing of being accountable to the public. And I remember at the end of my uh, um, my first reading, I, I did say to them, you know, so um, have you got any feedback? And, and, and please tell me, were there any mistakes? because I was reading for example the chapter that's set in Flate I was reading it in yes. Flate to people on Flate and they said oh there is just one actually um I said in 2011 Olina didn't have hens she had ducks <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> if that's if that's the biggest mistake then I'm, I'm happy there so I've yeah, you, you aren't that. you aren't sending the books to be pulped because of that are you that's not a <laughs> No, but I, but I also <laughs> I loved what that said about about the culture there like yeah. how well people know each other and, and know each other's sort of yearly cycles you know it was a really beautiful yeah. comment I read it also to my I read I did a reading for my ex-husband I went to the farms in the Duke like I said I did a reading to Alistair the farmer um, and it's been a really um into in Iceland the reason I wanted to go there first as well was because it feels like a a thing a story around which people could gather you know that mm. they were a part of it didn't feel like a book that was a product that's that's to be sold. It felt like something shared, like a nest, if you like, the nest of the title. Um, and in the UK, I wanted, obviously it's more of a product here, but I wanted to create that sense of conviviality around something, which is why I've been holding these readings and inviting people to bring knitting. And now I've got like book clubs who've started their own thing, who are reading it and, and, bring, and, and you know, doing a, a make-along, like an inspired by Iceland make-along. I just had that happen the other week. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been an incredibly, incredibly positive response from, from the readership. I think just in, in summary, I would add, and I say this as obviously as an Icelandophile, as someone who with his partner decided at some point we would move here and then finally did. You don't need to be an Icelandophile. This isn't, 
a book just for what you might describe as Icelandic nerds or, or people who buy everything and read everything and watch everything about Iceland. Absolutely. Yeah, no, what I wanted to write was a, was a story that spoke to the times that we live in, because I feel that actually, if anything, Icelanders are, and Westfjordians in particular, are incredibly good at dealing with uncertainty and being like equipped to respond to situations as they arise. And I feel like that's a skill set that mm. everybody could do with, with yes. taking inspiration from. As times get more and more uncertain, I, I feel like there's something incredibly of value in the Westfjordian way and mindset that I've come to appreciate not just while I was there, but even more so once I'd left. And so I wanted to take the reader on a journey where you actually never know what's going to happen. Mm. And and there's, there's a sense of there being a, a kind of dynamism and a flow and I'm taking the reader's body through those experiences that I experienced. So it's not, it's not, it is about Iceland, but it's also mm. not. It could have, could have been anywhere. Yeah. And it's also inspired a lot by ravens who are such big characters in the in the Westfjordian landscape, especially in winter. And ravens have this lovely sort of curiosity and humor and and diligence and kind of, yeah, a conviviality that mm. I found deeply inspiring. So I was actually inspired by encountering the raven's nest that used to live in the uh, Natural History Museum in Bollingerik mm. and seeing what incredible kind of avian sculpture that was. And I thought that's the metaphor for how you make a story. You weave in all of these broken fragments and make something that can contain life. Um, and it was this nest that contained you know, a knife handle, a bone, fishing net, a rake, a TV aerial, all of this mad jumble of stuff. That that's that's kind of what life is, isn't it? It's a mad jumble of stuff. And these days, yeah. a lot of it's broken, but we need to find a way to keep making use of it. So, the Raven's Nest of a title it, as a title is inspired by that that real nest. Sarah, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck with the paperback launch of the book on the first of June, The Raven's Nest by Sarah Thomas. Already and still, of course, out in hardback as well. Your first literary work and a very fine one which I very much enjoyed reading and talking about to you today as well Sarah thanks very much for your time thank you thank you it's... and I hear it will be available in Edmondson stores and it's also available in the old bookshop bookshop in in Flatteri which is where you can buy books by the by the key I have there. done so I, I I did exactly I was very taken by that bookstore and when I went to pay for the books I hadn't realized just how heavy books were because <laughs> I bought about 12 kilograms worth of books I think and it did cost a little bit more than I was expecting however in paperback it'll weigh a bit less I guess exactly. so that's something exactly. Sarah thanks very much indeed Sarah Thomas my guest today on Ruve English get in touch with us anytime by email we are english at ruv.is you're listening to the Ruve English podcast to hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is English.